Jonas, thank you so much uh, for setting aside the time today. Um, you are most recently the develop, or you were most recently the development officer um, at Columbia University School of the Arts and Miller Theater. How long were you there? Um, I w I've been here for a little over a little over two years. Fantastic. And you yourself had a background in performing, right? Yeah, I um, was a trained classical singer, and I sang professionally from about age 17 to almost 25 or 26. Um, had to have a surgery on my vocal cords, and so then, oh. I, yeah, I switched to the administrative side, did booking work for a while, um, and then got into development um, sort of just through freelance grant writing at first, and then more formally um, with some positions prior to, to Miller and Columbia. What voice part were you? Oh, I was a uh, lyric tenor. So a lot of Mozart, oh. a lot of Handel, a lot of Rossini. That's wonderful. Did you ever sing at the theater that you then worked at? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. That would have been funny, though, although I have a lot of colleagues who did. So um, I was aware of the work that Miller Theater did, just from being in New York, of course, um, and then also from colleagues who sang here, particularly with um, the contemporary music series. And... Miller is, uh, from what I understand, um, the sort of contemporary composition is one of the foci. Yeah, I mean, if you were to think of it in three major pillars, there is um, early music, jazz, and contemporary. Okay. And um, and not that old, right? No, it well, started it's like the late 80s? It started... Um, you know, we're going into next season will be the 25th anniversary, but it's really been presenting a lot longer than it than when it was called Miller Theater. So um, it's been uh, presenting music since really the 40s. Um, I think there were some recordings on stage of Aaron Copeland and and some pretty major things when NBC Radio was um, working in collaboration. So I'd have to check the old history books, but it's been presenting music for a long time. It just was formally named Miller Theater in 1988. Okay, so so there's uh, from New York theater goers, there's a memory of it before the late 80s. Oh, yeah. I work with some prospects and donors who knew it well before it was called Miller Theater. Um, and some of them actually sometimes call it uh, historical names by accident. So, Sure, sure. But, I mean, that's great, actually, for donors, that there's, like, a longer memory and relationship and, and everything oh, like yes, that. Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. And... Uh, and New York is a fairly competitive um, venue scene, certainly. I mean, I'm, I'm sure even on the, the far upper side where you are. So um, when, when talking to donors, when talking to potential audience members, what sort of differentiates Miller from uh, other venues, other um, music and performance locales. Well, you know, I you know, I can't speak on behalf of the executive director or, you know, the sure. institution as a whole, but certainly from um an outside perspective of just knowing Miller well before um I even came to work here and at the School of the Arts at Columbia. Um 
even though I think it's strong in presenting all three of those pillars that we talked about, it gets the most notoriety, I think, for the Composer Portrait Series, which highlights um, a contemporary com uh, composer and most of the time has them interviewed on stage at intermission, which is a model that's being copied uh, by some other presenters in the city. Um, I think it's also very, very good in all of the series on catching people on the rise up um, to uh, their fame. So, for example, Kaya Sariaho was... Um, produced and presented here um, a couple years before Carnegie Hall decided to pick her up as their artist in residence. Uh, another example would be New York Polyphony. You know, we, we caught them right before they were signed on by major management and started touring the world. So I think there is that legacy also of, of um, from a curatorial perspective, picking people up um, on, on the cusp of a major career. That's great um, as as a sort of niche area also for a university of really being that first uh, or, or university relationship to really be that first sort of venue where people are able to uh, have some exposure and to support people young in their careers, if not young in age. Yeah, and there's a, you know, since it's tied to such a great research university and place of learning, uh -huh. I think it only uh, is fitting that the kind of work that's presented to is is um, it can be highly intellectual, but not in the bad, not in the pejorative sense. Sure, sure. And how I was reading that it, you seat about seven hundred in the theater on any given night, and that's what like maybe three times the size of a movie theater. Yeah, so. uh, it's about six hundred and eighty-eight when you take in um, all the seats. And uh, it's it's a really it was initially built as a lecture hall, so okay. um, yeah. So acoustically, I think um, it, it works very very well for certain kinds of music and others that we we've, we've made it work. <laughs> so <laughs> it certainly wasn't built with the, the idea of being a concert hall, but um, but we make it work in all the situations that we have to. And we actually it's really great for dance. Um, although we don't oh. present a lot of it, but we have in the past. So. Great. And and how did you get into, um, or, or rather, doing development work? Were you overseeing all aspects of development? Were you one amongst many? What sort of team were you on? What size development staff? Uh, specifically at Miller or just in general in life? How did I get into that? <laughs> specifically at Miller. Oh, at Miller. Well, I was hired as the development officer, and like a lot of campus presenting models, the development staff is shared between the University okay. Arts Department and the theater. So Miller Theater is okay. under the umbrella of the School of the Arts, even though it's you know it has its own um, you know programming and okay. mission. That is separate from, you know, the university. But um, as far as the actual structure of it, you know, the board is still um, part of the university, et cetera. Uh, so I was hired as the development officer to manage the annual fund for both the School of the Arts and for Miller Theater, and also to manage a portfolio of about 100 prospects who could make leadership annual fund gifts and potentially major gifts. So it's a real blend. Yes, very much of, so. Of different factors. Um, and how how is it that you all started screening ticket buyers? How did that happen? Uh, well, one of your former colleagues, Brian Chapman, 
um, had been hired on by the university as a whole to work uh, to take a really hard look at the university's data system. Of course, and Miller Theater is part of that. So he also then spoke to uh, sort of the department heads of the different units of Columbia to 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 give them a, to give us a brief introduction on how to look at the data, what it all means, how to analyze it. And when we spoke to Brian, he had offered, um, or he told us about other theaters that were using it in, in ways that we hadn't and hadn't thought to use it, which was one of them was ticket screening, and offered us one year of sort of free use just to see if we thought it would be useful and to see if we wanted to continue it. And so that's uh, that's when we started sort of dabbling in it, and then it just took took off from there. And what? Uh, sort of realistically, what frequency did that mean? Were you by the? I mean, okay, take us back. So the first sure. you started sure. doing it probably with a batch at like a, there was a lump sum, but then somehow you were trying to sort of do it in real time yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So the sort of the rhythm that we kind of fell into. I mean, it was hard, and we still we still talk about yeah. what how to maximize it because of course. You know, Miller Theater, even though it's part of a big university, it has its own budget, and you know it can't exceed it. So we didn't want to just screen every name that was ever going to buy a ticket. Um, so we fell into the rhythm of looking at the ticket data about a week before the performance, uh, okay. knowing that there's a lot of single ticket buyers out there um, who want to get it maybe just 48 hours in advance. Um, but we had to put the line somewhere so that we had time to do the screening and then also to map it back to any data that we had uh, in-house and then make a plan for certain individuals. So um, a week is where we found the sweet spot. And we, any less than that, and it can feel rushed, any more than that, and we started losing um, you know, a lot of people because not everybody likes to buy subscriptions. And you know, that model is most people are buying single tickets. Right. And so when you say matching it up to the university system, so you, you would like screen them through the wealth screening software and then see if any of the names came up in the university donor management system or something like that? Yeah. And, you know, so one thing, the, the way it works is on any given concert, let's say there's um, uh, 400 ticket buyers. We'll do the okay. screen, and then, or I'll do the screening, and then I'll see who the top maybe 25 are as far as just raw capacity, not any okay. or anything. Then I'll go and check into the uh, university's data system, which you can imagine is really large and quite extensive, sure. and try to find maybe of those 25, which five have linkage to the university and uh, the theater, which is not always the case because a lot of these people are just interested in Miller Theater as a standalone institution, even though it's part of the university. Of course, the sweet spot is finding someone who has ties to both or has historically been, you know, a consistent giver to Miller Theater. Um, so then you find we find those five, and uh -huh. we look at those, look at their stories, and then I'll reach out to to them by email maybe 48 hours before a show, just thanking them for either being a long-term subscriber or donor or first-time ticket buyer, whatever label is appropriate, and say that I'll look for them at intermission or before the concert. So it's it's aggressive, <laughs> I think, but it's not it's not rude. And certainly if they're philanthropists, which of course the people who tend to rise to the top are, they know exactly uh, what's going on. 
So then I will get their seat numbers uh, from the ticket office and um, before the concert or at intermission, introduce myself. And do you, is it just a matter of introduction at that first point? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, it's usually a hello. I wanted to thank you in person, you know, for being part of the Miller family for so long. And that's it. And then that gives me an opportunity then to follow up at 48 hours later saying, how did you like the concert? But the uh -huh. thoughts on it. Can we go to coffee? And then that's how it starts. It always starts with coffee, right? It starts with coffee, <laughs> exactly. Lunch if they've got a really high capacity. But <laughs> so um, you know, that's that's how it begins. And there are some situations where it's absolutely not my role to to engage with them. You know, maybe they need someone higher up. Um, but okay. certainly at the annual fund or leadership annual fund level, it's appropriate for me to scout it out. And I, you know, I've been given a lot of freedom to to try this out and. I got a lot of um, ideas from other colleagues. Um, my job prior to uh, Miller Theatre and Columbia was at Opera America, which is a service organization for uh, the majority of opera companies in North America. So I would have, you know, 130 different models I could look at. So I, I remember reaching out to certain people who I thought had pretty unique um, ideas and, and seeing how we can integrate this system because of course the seat visit model is not very new but I think using data like this is is somewhat new. Yeah, yeah. Did did any of the initial introductions and copies result in new good relationships or did most of them sort of end at coffee? No, they are mostly all really great relationships, and I actually made a list because I wanted to make sure I could um, think about some of them when I talk to you. Um, one of them is now at the stage of um, they're working with their advisors on a major gift because uh, we have an anniversary next year. So this is someone who's now been cultivated for about a year and a half or two years. Um, they're considering, you know, a $25,000 gift. Um, though I'm not sure exactly what they're going to do, but it'll be probably around that level. Um, we have some others who came up very high, and after a little bit more research, we realized they were really great plan giving prospects. So they have plan giving proposals uh -huh. on their tables. Um, we have some that we met who are just very gregarious in the uh, in the hall, and so they've been put on committees. Uh, and others are just That's so you know. Smart. Yeah, some of them were just a handshake in the hall, and they maybe bumped up their annual fund a little bit. So, I mean, there's really a range of where the relationships went. I can honestly say no one was freaked out or put off uh, by me showing up. You know, That's I think, great. I think, of course, that is a major fear, um, and, and rightfully so, and everyone's audience is going to be a little bit different. But either I've just locked out or the people I've met have been very friendly and <laughs> not minded that or I you're stalking before <laughs> and during the concert. Or you're wonderful. And well, they you know what, I'll take that. You put that in the interview. You, yep, you keep that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, before you figured out that, like, sending the email 48 hours before and finding their yeah. seat number and scouting them out at intermission was, like, the, the good rhythm, what yeah. were some of the things that didn't quite work that you tried in the first couple months? first couple of months I tried actually to, for those people who had been longtime subscribers but maybe, and had high capacity but hadn't given a gift, I thought uh -huh. I could um, bring around like a board member or 
uh, the executive director of the theater to really wow them with the personal service. Uh-huh. And it didn't quite work because when you take someone at that level through the audience, um, they're going to be pulled aside by numerous people. They're going, their attention is going to be fought for. And we don't have a patron lounge, which would be the very logical place to invite. Like if we had a patron lounge, I would probably not be so on the ground. I would probably have them come to the patron lounge instead at intermission um, and have a controlled situation. But since we don't, I tried to bring the senior leadership to the person, and it just didn't work because inevitably another board member or someone from the press or someone wanting something from her, another staff member would try to grab her attention, and so we wouldn't get through all the seat visits. That's really interesting because in some ways it means that you actually then are just establishing the primary relationship because it made sense and there's not uh, the the need for that sort of like concierge high level wow factor. Yeah, you know, uh, I could move with more alacrity through the hall because I'm not as well known. I mean, I think that really was was part of it. And right. and honestly and looking back on it too, um I think that my level of staff is actually probably more appropriate. Because um, okay. even though these people have high capacity, none of these people were major gift owners before. Because obviously, if they were, they would have already gotten special attention. This is really used for acquisition purposes. And how and how many people can you realistically get to <laughs> in a performance? Um, I move pretty quickly, and I can do about five. I think. Um, it's, in and in I, one intermission, or is that between intermission and after, before? It's uh, with before and intermission. Um, our okay. seats are very, um, we have, we're roomy for a New York theater, so okay. that has been, um, I have room to kind of, you know, wiggle through the aisle. Um, however, when we're off-site, I generally just don't try because some of the venues we use, are we pick for acoustic reasons, but the seats are really so close together, or they're dark or their churches, and I can't see. So there's some real like logistics you just sort of figure out while you're doing it. Um, but when I'm at when we're in our home hall, um, I can move pretty quickly. Yeah, and I would think also with the churches or something like that, you don't. I mean, you could Google image someone and try to find a picture, but really picking them out of a pew line would be really hard compared to just having a specific seat number. Yeah, well, one trick I use um, is let's say um, it's, you know, John Smith is the is the prospect, and I and he's bought three tickets, and I get to uh, the group of seats, and there's three men sitting there. Of course, ah. I, don't know, I don't know who the person is, so I usually just say, hi, John, I'm Jonah, and whoever looks at me is John. <laughs> so that's how... I can smoke them out of a group because, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can. I've done that before and had it backfire where he gave the tickets away oh. to a group of friends oh. <laughs> and never wrote me back when I said I was going to be coming to visit. So um, that was embarrassing. But I just said, well, please tell John. <laughs> you know, I, I came by as I said it would, and they thought it was funny. But um, that's how I usually pick it out because, of course, I've never seen any of these people before. Or, I mean, I don't know who these people are, so right, right. you have to figure out which one they are by just calling out their name. It usually works. 
Yeah, yeah, and certainly, you know, any images that you find publicly can be misleading. Um, so yeah, having some way that you you, yeah, you until they look up, that's brilliant. Yeah, you know, or say like Mr. Johnson, it's very, uh, I'm Jonah, I'm the guy who emailed you. So. Right, right. Did did you find by and large that um, when somebody had a, a given capacity through the well screening um, and they were in the university system or not, that uh, they were a decent sort of wealth prospect? Uh, or oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, one thing that Brian really instilled in us is he talked a lot about GG&A. This is to GG&A's credit is that uh, you're conservative in your estimates, especially at the exact and near level of screening. Um, sometimes I'll dig into the possibles as well, but at the exact and near level, I've not had any misfires. And you're really just doing an initial overall screening. You're not necessarily getting deep down profiles on the uh, on the top 20. Well, you know, obviously a place like Columbia is going to be sitting on a lot of data and occasionally yeah. there'll be somebody who has had a dossier or something put together in the past that wasn't um you know that wasn't explored. So that's a great that's great to go in with all that, but it's still it's it can be as small as a 2-minute interaction. So I'm not going to really dig too deep. It's nice to know that about them. Um, but I don't right, delve right. into it. The qualification doesn't really come until later. Right, as you develop the relationship and everything. Exactly. Um, and how long have you been doing the screening now of, about, of um, ticket buyers regularly? About two years. years. Yeah. Almost right when I started. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, this is fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. This was wonderful. And oh, uh, we wish you all sorts of success in your next adventures. And oh, thank wish you. <laughs> wonderful contributions to uh, arts development. Thank 